Whether you're shopping for grads, getting an early gift for dad, or just looking for a little something new or used for your shelf, you'll find it at HPB. And you'll get almost everything for an extra 20% off during the big sale at Half Price Books this Memorial Day weekend. Saturday, May 25th through Monday, May 27th. Save big in-store at your local Half Price Books and at HPB.com. Offer cannot be combined with other coupons. Exclusions apply. To learn more, visit HPB.com. Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new. Because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun. FX's new international spy thriller The Veil starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge. Inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man with a sour reminder that there is no mathematically possible way that your fantasy team will make the playoffs this year. Ladies and gentlemen, here is the cap. It's just another day here in paradise. It's good to be seen and good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. This week, we are very excited to be featuring Angel of Abomination by the brilliant brewers over at Track 7 Brewing Company. This is a delightful cold double India pale ale with two types of hops, ABV 8%, garage grade 4 and a 5 bottle caps. And here's some cheers and thanks to our friends that helped us out with this week's beer run. First up, a shout out to Ashley in Scarborough, Maine, and last but certainly not least, We have lots of love coming from Jessica all the way in Gothenburg, Sweden. Everyone we mentioned helped us out with the beer fund. And if you want to help us out, you can go to truecrimegarage.com and click on the donate button. Yeah, B-W-E-R-R-U-N, beer run. And if you need more True Crime Garage for your earballs, make sure you sign up for our show on Stitcher Premium. It is called Off the Record. It is so worth it. Almost 200 episodes. So go get you some, and that's enough of the business. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. At least seven women stabbed and murdered. A series of murders in the Connecticut River Valley. I suspect it was the work of a serial killer. All were stabbed multiple times. Times. That's why I'm here, to look for results, to have results, to give those families an answer. 34 years have passed since Jane Borowski sped through the New Hampshire night, pregnant, covered in blood, and stab wounds. Jane Borowski was just 22 years old and several months pregnant and didn't know it that night 
but she may have been a serial killer's only survivor. Late in the evening of Saturday, August 6th, 1988, Jane Borowski is driving home from the county fair in Keene, New Hampshire. Along the way, she decided to stop and grab a soda for the remainder of her drive. She stopped at a convenience store in West Swansea. The little store was closed, but no big deal. There's a vending machine out front. Jane pulls into a spot right in front of the store. By this time, it's already dark out. The parking area is small and not well lit. There does not seem to be anyone else around. She got out of her car and walked up to the well-lit soda machine. She put in a couple of quarters, made her selection, and bingo, the can drops to the open slot in the machine near her knees. She grabbed the can, turns around, and immediately notices that someone else has pulled into the parking lot. A Jeep Wagoneer parked right next to her car. Jane returns to her vehicle through her rearview mirror she notices the driver of the Wagoneer walking around the back of her vehicle. It's a man, and he approached Jane's open driver's side door window. He says something like, Hey, is that payphone working? Jane starts to answer when the man immediately grabs the door handle and opens the car door. He grabs her and pulled her from the vehicle. As he's pulling her from the vehicle, Jane screams and says to the man, Please don't hurt me. I'm pregnant. Now she's out of the car. The two struggle, during which the man accused her of beating up his girlfriend and asked if she had Massachusetts plates on her car. Borowski responded that she had New Hampshire plates. Jane manages to break free from the attack. She tries to flee. The man chases after He grabs Jane, and then he stabs her 27 times. The man then calmly walks back to his vehicle, opens the door, and gets in. Then he drives off. This is True Crime Garage, and this is the true story of the still unsolved case of the Connecticut River Valley Killer. Seven women stabbed and murdered. A series of murders in the Connecticut River Valley. I suspect it was the work of a serial killer. All were stabbed multiple times. Times. And that's why I'm here, to look for results, to have results, to give those families an answer. On a Wednesday night in October of 1991, I remember being a little boy, sitting down to tune in to one of my favorite television shows, Unsolved Mysteries. My favorite mysteries back then were the legends, things like the Bermuda Triangle and the Yeti. My least favorite mysteries featured on the show were the Lost Loves. Selfishly, I thought, let these people find each other on their own time because this is my time, one hour each week that I get to tune in and be amazed and intrigued by the mysteries out there in the real world. Many of them, because of my young age, I was learning about for the very first time. 
all with the great voice and delivery of Robert Stack to lead us through each story. Now, on the night of October 9th, 1991, without any prior knowledge, I was going to learn about something much more terrifying than magnetic and frequency issues leading aircrafts to disappear in the western part of the North Atlantic Ocean, or some mysterious hairy ape-like creature that inhabits the Himalayan mountain range. On this night's episode, Mr. Stack is schooling us all on the subject of serial killers. The first mystery of that week's show flashed on the screen with the bright blue letters. The bold blue word hit my screen and it read, Wanted. The title of the case was the Connecticut River Valley Killer. My first thought was, well, I might have a hard time falling asleep tonight. Stack's lead-in was as follows. Police estimate that there may be as many as 100 serial killers living among us, on our streets and in our neighborhoods. They are cruel and calculating, choosing victims indiscriminately, with little or no remorse for their actions. The overwhelming task for authorities is to determine how the serial killer thinks and hopefully learn where and when he might strike again. One such investigation is currently underway in New England. Since 1978, the bodies of seven young women have been discovered within a 50-mile radius in the Connecticut River Valley along the New Hampshire-Vermont border near Route 91. Police believe that six of them were abducted and taken to remote wooded areas where they were murdered. All suffered similar stab wounds. Most were found off dirt roads. None were sexually assaulted. And police began to suspect that the murders were the work of the same individual, a serial killer. Pretty haunting scene. You see Robert Stack walking through the woods with his trench coat on it. And I believe the comment was something like, FBI believes that there's over a hundred serial killers out there. And you're like, well, if there's this serial killer and he's responsible for seven, eight murders, then times that by a hundred and he got 800 and some victims out there. Yeah. And he's reciting a stat that was well delivered uh, for the time anyway. So back in the eighties and the nineties, one typical conversation that was always being had about serial killers. Well, how many are there? And it was almost like you would think of them like senators. Well, there's probably two in every state was the general thought. And so that's how you come up with that number of 100. Now, while Stack's narration was spot on as usual, a few updates. One, today, the estimated number of serial killers walking amongst us just here in the United States is between 350 to 500. Another terrifying update here, Captain, the cases covered in this segment of Unsolved Mysteries that aired over 30 years ago, well, they're still unsolved. Many of them on the cold case shelves in Vermont and New Hampshire. And the one that they call the Connecticut River Valley Killer has never been apprehended for these homicides, nor has anybody else. The Connecticut River Valley Killer is the name given to an unidentified American serial killer believed to be responsible for a series of stabbing murders, mostly in and around Claremont, New Hampshire, and the Connecticut River Valley, primarily in the 1980s. Yeah, that's some scary statistics. Anyone that would like to view the Unsolved mystery segment for themselves, this case was featured on episode four of season four 
of Unsolved Mysteries, and that is currently available to view for free on Amazon Prime. Yes, I just watched it again this week. We briefly discussed the attack and the attempted murder of Jane Borowski in today's trailer, leading into this week's case. She is interviewed on Unsolved Mysteries for their episode as well. Her voice is disguised, and she appears only in the shadows on the show to help maintain her anonymity. Now, keep in mind, if she is, as the show portrays, the only living survivor of this killer of women, well, this is for not just for her safety, number one, and the safety of the case as it stands, because if they can prove that any of these cases are, in fact, connected to each other or to the horrifying attack that took place and nearly killed Jane Borowski some 34 years ago, well, then she would have been paramount to the prosecution in the state's case against the offender once identified, arrested, and charged. Right. A Vermont newspaper, this is the Rutland Daily Herald, did a follow-up article on the show's coverage of this case. Now, keep in mind, at the time, in the late 80s, even into the early 90s, this case had many of the women in the area terrified. And of course, the case had the detectives perplexed. Nobody could really agree if these cases were all connected or how many of them were connected amongst the cases that they had outstanding. The detectives had some leads, but one thing that we are going to see in this case, Captain, is that the remains of some of these victims were not located for a considerable amount of time. This, of course, causing a major issue for these investigations. Remember, we've discussed this all the time here in the garage, that time is the killer. Time is the killer of evidence, of witnesses, of their memories, what persons with key information in any case can verify or even remember. We just, time does not help as it goes by these investigations. Well, in this area too, as well as heavily wooded area, New Hampshire, Vermont area, a lot of back roads, a lot of places to hide bodies. Here's a good summary of that follow-up article. The headline was exciting and intriguing, and it reads, Mystery Show Leads to Tip on I-91 Murder. In fact, the article states that the New Hampshire State Police received about 800 tips from around the nation since Unsolved Mysteries aired their coverage of the case months earlier. The article goes on to state that the New Hampshire and Vermont State Police are investigating crimes, including the murder of Barbara Agnew, a Norwich nurse who disappeared January of 1987 from a rest area off of northbound Interstate 91 near White River Junction. Barbara's body was found 11 weeks later, 89 feet off of an isolated road in Heartland. Police said her death was caused by multiple stab wounds. Barbara Agnew's murder at the time was one of seven unsolved homicides in the Connecticut River Valley since 1978. Now, this article goes on to point out something very important to this case and is stated as, although police have not officially linked the killings, they were portrayed as the work of a serial killer on Unsolved Mysteries. New Hampshire. State Police Detective Sergeant Clay Young said, quote, that is one theory which we have investigated but have not fully endorsed. 
He said the decision by the Unsolved Mysteries crew to portray the killings as serial crimes probably made it more appealing to viewers. Quote, it gave exposure to the case. It did generate phone calls from all over the country. Anything that keeps it in the eye of the public, we welcome, end quote. It's really hard to definitively connect these cases because the physical evidence was so, there was so much decay that we have a lack of physical evidence in these cases. Some of them are not found for weeks, months, or even years after they disappeared. And like the captain pointed out, many of these victims are believed to have been stabbed to death. That gets a little complicated when you have such decomposition with some of these victims to actually discern exactly what took place or how the victim may have even been killed. Let's get into the victims here and some of the victimology in this case. The short version of it is this, that for roughly 10 years between 1978 and 1988, eight women were murdered in the Connecticut River Valley region that straddles the border of Vermont and New Hampshire. All of these victims are believed to have been stabbed, many in a specific pattern across the upper body and abdomen. Again, that gets very hard to decipher in some of these cases because of such levels of decomposition. Right. Two questions remain amongst others. Are all or some of these victims connected to one killer or is one or multiple killers still free? The first one in the series, many consider this to be the first one is the unsolved 1978 homicide of Catherine Milliken. On October 24th, 1978, Catherine Milliken, age 26, she was last seen photographing birds at the Chandler Brook Wetland Preserve in New London, New Hampshire. Her body was found just yards from where she had been taking these photographs, and it was determined later that she had been stabbed over 20 times. She's one of the cases, Captain, where she's last seen in this area. Her body's found not terribly far from where she's last seen. There doesn't seem to be any kind of threat that anybody else recognized at the time. Yet she's found, and she's one that is actually, she's one of the few victims that were actually found relatively quickly. Next, that brings us to Mary Elizabeth Critchley. The details of her case are as such. Mary Critchley was last seen on July 25th, 1981, near exit 13, of the Massachusetts Turnpike in Farmingham, Massachusetts. Mary had been dropped off there by a friend and was then going to be hitchhiking to Waterbury, Vermont. This is where she lived with another friend. Mary was attending classes at the University of Vermont and at the time of her death was working to get this education, finish her schooling, and go into a career. Sadly, her body was found on August 9th, 1981 in the woods off of Unity Stage Road in Unity, New Hampshire. The medical examiner was not able to determine a cause of death because of the condition of the body. So there's extenuating circumstances here, Captain. We know that the circumstances surrounding her disappearance and her death are considered by law enforcement to be suspicious. And that's why this victim's name finds itself on this list and as a potential victim in this series. Right. But the complications in the condition of the body 
did not allow the medical examiner to determine the cause of death, even though she's found relatively quickly. Notice that we have she's last seen July 25th and her body is recovered August 9th. Well, again, like I said, this is a breeding ground for serial killers. This is a you have heavy, heavily wooded areas and then those areas which are not highly they're not highly trafficked by by individuals and then you have a plethora of rodents and other animals that are going to get to these victims the problem being with a lot of these cases and you take a look at them and when you dissect the case you start to see similarities You'll see similarities with these victims where some of them were hitchhiking, were known to hitchhike, and were known to be in the act of hitchhiking on the day that they were last seen. And then you compound that with the location of where the bodies are recovered from later, and it looks like you have, if not the same killer in a lot of these cases, you at least have someone with a relatively trite M.O., but a very similar modus operandi picking up a hitchhiker, picking up a stranger and then went discarding of the body in a remote wooded area. Yeah. I would define all these cases as crimes of opportunity, but I believe this killer or killers is putting themselves in the right positions for those opportunities. For I think those opportunities. I think you're spot on, and, and the experts would agree with you in this case, Captain, that you're exactly right. These are mainly victims of uh, crimes of opportunity. Predator spots prey, random, procures them, whether it's snatch and grab, talking them into a vehicle, or showing some kind of threat, gun or threat, and forcing them into to being captive now a captive victim and you're exactly right we often in anything that we do we often create our own opportunities right and what you have here is very high probability that if look I, i'll go ahead and get it out of the way now we don't need to dance around it too much i don't think that all of these cases are in fact connected to one killer I do believe, however, that several of them are, in fact, the work of one individual. And I think it gets a little difficult to to decide which ones belong in that category and which ones don't. But whoever whoever committed these crimes is somebody that was out looking for somebody, right? I think that the the perpetrator of several of these homicides was somebody that was out trolling in the area trolling near interstate 91 for a good deal of time for several years. And you're right. Crimes of opportunity, but the killer created their own opportunity by constantly be driving out by themselves, trolling around in their free time and looking for a potential victim. That brings us to Bernice court. Cormanche. That brings us to Bernice Cormanche. She was only 17 years old. She was last seen alive around 3.30 in the afternoon on May 30th, 1984. She was last seen hitchhiking on Route 12. This is near Claremont, New Hampshire. She was working as an assistant at a nursing home part-time while also attending high school. 
Court Manchi was a nurse's aide, and she's last seen on the 30th of May, 1984. She's reported missing the very next day. Authorities said that her skeletal remains were found nearly two years later. So this was April 19th, 1986. The remains were discovered off of Cat Hole Road in Newport. Her body was decomposed. An autopsy revealed that Cormanchi had been stabbed to death. Cormanchi's case has been popularly linked to these this series of crimes, the unsolved killings of the Connecticut River Valley killer. But cold case officials don't believe that all of the cases that we are going to discuss are connected. The thing that they keep pointing out, though, when they anytime that they say we don't believe that all of these cases are, in fact, connected, they usually follow it up with a statement that's similar to this, saying that the possibility can't be fully investigated until one of these cases gets solved, which makes sense. So you have this this span of in depending on where you go for your information or who you talk to, you get a varying degree of how many victims are we actually talking about that could be in this series. And Unfortunately, we're going to be telling you the same thing that we we can't look at all these cases and say they're all 100 percent connected. No ifs, ands or buts. But again, I feel strongly that many of these cases very likely are connected. So those numbers we keep seeing saying eight women or 10 women. But really, those numbers vary, Captain, from as few as seven victims all the way up to potentially 13 or 14 victims. I would actually argue that it could be double that. And the reason why is because, like I said, this is a; these are grounds for every hitchhiker that we have in this area that we then found the remains of, how many of these hitchhikers were never found. And so, yes, we have eight bodies that are found. Now we got to figure out if these bodies are connected in any way, shape, or form. But how many victims did they not find? How many missing persons within this time frame and roughly this area and again law enforcement is putting these crimes within 50 miles is the hunting ground for this individual or multiple individuals even further than that so if you then figure out that a couple of these cases might be connected and you got to put them in this group over here group a and then you connect a couple other of the other victims and they're connected put them in group b and now we got two killers how many victims are not found in that area? And I think here, one thing that I paid close attention to, Captain, was more so where the victims were last seen right. or what evidence suggests to where the abduction took place or where whatever went wrong started to occur. Because, and this is going to sound very cold of me to say this, but this is nothing new here in the garage. We talked about this way back when we first covered the Tony Anthony Muncie case. We had seen in several cases in the 80s where victims were either abducted or something went down that, which led to their death, their murder, in Columbus or the greater Columbus area. But it was not uncommon, especially in the 80s, it's still unfortunately not uncommon today, to then find a Columbus victim to find their body in Delaware County, north of Columbus, right. north of Franklin County. And sometimes, unfortunately, you have a situation where you find bodies in similar areas over a great length of time or a period of time. 
And it doesn't necessarily mean that all the cases have to be connected. Sometimes, unfortunately, again, this is going to sound cold, but sometimes there's just good places to put a body and therefore people do it. Well, and it's an easy place because of the terrain just to get lost. Yeah. And you see that in the Unsolved Mysteries coverage, too, when it shows Robert Stack and then later shows the psychologist who helped police on the case them walking through this wooded area and very quickly when you're looking at this segment and you see them in the woods you go yeah i kind of get it why somebody would place the body there and that you have these cases where the remains are not found for months or even years we have two years almost two years in this last case that we just talked about in bernice's case and you understand why it took so long for the body to be recovered there's nothing that suggests that anybody held Bernice Comanche for a long period of time. Right. It's very likely that, unfortunately, she was killed shortly after she was abducted or shortly after she hitchhiked and got into the wrong vehicle. And so it, you, you can look at the terrain, as you've pointed out, and understand that there are a reason why a killer or somebody that killed somebody would place a, a victim there. It's in the hopes that they're not recovered or if they are recovered that time is the killer and evidence has been destroyed due to time that leads us now to ellen freed from newport she was age 26 when she was last seen talking on a payphone she was talking to her sister on the payphone outside of leo's market this is a convenience store a small convenience store in claremont this took place july 22nd 1984 Freed's sister would later tell investigators that at one point during their phone conversation, her sister Ellen told her that a car had driven by and out of fear, Freed had checked to make sure that the engine of her own car was still working, that this car had spooked her that had drove by. I'm getting the feeling here that she probably saw the vehicle more than one on one occasion if she's checking to make sure that her engine is still working and then noting that to her sister. There's a bunch of things in this case or these cases that bother me or give law enforcement trouble. One is just lack of eyewitnesses. But this case in particular, out of all of them, really haunts me because we've all been there. When we've been somewhere or we feel like a car is following us or something doesn't seem right. Seems like in some of these cases, like especially with the hitchhikers, they were hitchhiking and got into the wrong vehicle. Mm-hmm. But in this scenario, she's well aware of what's happening and she's well aware there's something not right going on here. And then she goes missing. Yeah. And her case reminds me, Captain, of Jane Borowski's case the survivor. And it also reminds me of another one of these cases. I can see some connections in some of these cases and some, some similarities as we go through these. Now she's last seen last heard of talking to her sister on this payphone. Then a few days later, Ellen Freed's car was found two miles from the Leo's market where she was on the phone with her sister. Her skeletal remains were found in a wooded area next to the Sugar River. This in Kellyville, 
in the greater Kellyville area of Newport, New Hampshire. Now, her remains are not recovered until September 19th, 1985. So again, we have a situation. This is over a year later after she was last heard from alive and well. The autopsy revealed the cause of death to be undetermined, again, because the, the skeletal remains were in such a state of decomposition that it didn't really give proof positive evidence as to how she was killed. However, the circumstances of her disappearance and the findings at the scene where her body was later recovered were consistent with Ellen having been sexually assaulted before her death. The case has been treated as a homicide. Her body was found in the same wooded area as Bernice Kurmanchi. We also have the unsolved homicide of Ava Morse. Her remains were found in Unity on April 25th, 1986. She was 27 years of age at the time that she went missing. She was last seen on the morning of July 10th, 1985, hitchhiking on Route 12 near North Charleston, New Hampshire. The medical examiner determined that Morris had been stabbed to death. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. 
Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. You'll step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. Use your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery danger, and romance, and customize your very own luxurious estate island. Think expansive gardens and beautiful buildings. Collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. And you can chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. All right, we are back. Thanks for joining us here in the garage. Cheers to everybody and happy holidays. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Everybody have a safe wonderful holiday season i want to give a quick shout out here captain to dennis and jacks and beautiful parts unknown dennis checked his spotify year in review and he has listened to over twenty nine thousand minutes of true crime garage in 2022 that's over 483 wow. hours of captain and colonel mm. goodness for the earballs. big balls so if you have listened to more then Dennis, tweet at me a screenshot at TCGNIC. I want to hear from you. I'm searching for the garage's most avid listener of 2022. So big cheers to Dennis out there and his dog, Jax, who I imagine Jax has got to be in great shape as well as Dennis. If, if, the, if all of these minutes listening were conducted during dog walking sessions. This now, Captain, brings us to one of the more difficult victims in this series, for me anyway. And this is the victim, Linda Moore, who was age 36. And I'm going to go ahead and throw this out here right now. Her, her murder, her the details surrounding her murder and the speculation on her case is, is enough to cover one or two episodes on her own. And this is the one to me where I quickly look at it and have a very difficult time right. 
lumping it in with the others. This case is quite different in my mind, simply because she was killed inside of her house in Sexton's River, Vermont, on April 15, 1986. So we know she wasn't out hitchhiking. We know that she wasn't found, you know, somebody out trolling around and finds a, a potential victim at a rest area or on a payphone. This woman was found killed in her own home. We know where her body was found and her body, you know, it wasn't like she was at a payphone and that, that her body was found in the woods, like some of the other victims. But this is what I think makes it so difficult for law enforcement about connecting these cases is because if you have these killers and we see this all the time, these killers could have a loop. Oh, well, I, I drive to this gas station because they have a payphone, and I see if anybody's at the payphone. And then I go to this rest stop and I see if anybody's there. And then I drive along the freeway and see if anybody's hitchhiking and see if anybody's car broke down. Right. And is it possible that this killer stops at a convenience store and, and sees her and follows her back to the house? That's a possibility, too. The good thing for the investigation in her case is that you have a good deal more of evidence and information to really try to hone in on what exactly went down and who is responsible for her homicide, where you don't have that in many of these other cases. So in the case of Linda Moore, look, that afternoon, her husband is the one that right. found her stabbed to death inside their home. And th th there's this tragic story, this true tragic story of not only of this wonderful lady, this mother of two who was killed in her own home, but they tried to, okay, so her husband finds her in the afternoon. He drove home from work, discovers his wife has been murdered and inside their home, the police are now on the scene and they're looking through the evidence and trying to figure out what happened. But at the same time, they are scrambling to stop the school buses. So the school buses are out in the area and they're driving the kids home from school that day. Linda Moore's two children were on a bus en route to their home. They were scheduled to be dropped off at any minute. That's awful. And of course, the father and police, nobody wanted the children hopping off the bus, walking right. into this murder scene and, and seeing their mother in this condition. They hadn't even removed the body from the scene yet. And the police tried their damnedest, but this is one of those additional tragic stories that comes along with these stories that we tell each week that they kept stopping bus after bus. They couldn't get a car to the bus that actually had Linda Moore's children on it in time. The kids showed up and were dropped off at the driveway of their home. Now, fortunately by that time, of course we already have their father on the scene. He's the one that discovered Linda having been stabbed to death. But the grandparents had also been notified and were on, on the scene and able to intercept the children, put them in their car, and unfortunately deliver the bad news then and there to them at that time. So they didn't have to witness anything unnecessarily. But it, it just one of those weird stories where police did their damnedest to try to spare further trauma. 
Now, prior to being stabbed, Linda Moore was sunbathing on her lawn. Several people were seen outside of Linda Moore's household, including a mysterious dark-haired man with cheap sunglasses. I, I should be clear, with cheap glasses. I, there's nothing to indicate that they were sunglasses. And a blue knapsack. Although Linda Moore was not left in the woods like the other victims, her body, she was stabbed in that specific pattern shown in other stabbing victims in the valley. Profiler John Philpin, who we talked about, he's the psychologist that assisted police in this investigation and others related to the Connecticut River Valley homicides. He believes that it's possible that the killer had been interrupted, which prevented him from then moving the body to a more secluded area or more secluded location like we found with some of the other victims. The other thing that gets difficult in these cases, Captain, is trying to determine where the victim was killed. I'm of the belief that it's it's possible that some of the victims were killed where they were found or near where they were found. But like you had said earlier, there's also the possibility in one, two, or several of these cases, they may have been killed in a vehicle or killed elsewhere and then transported to the secluded area for the purposes of hoping that the bodies would not be found. And like we said, there's not a lot of eyewitnesses that are connected to these cases. So we don't have a vehicle that we're looking at that connects all these cases together. After the murder of Linda Moore, this brings us to what many believe to be the last of the deceased victims. This is Barbara Agnew, who was 38 when she vanished. Agnew was a divorcee with a young son. She was working as a nurse at a cardiac unit. Barbara was last seen at the Stratton Vermont ski area where she had been skiing with her friends in January of 1987. Her vehicle, this is a BMW, was found at a Interstate 91 northbound rest stop in Hartford, Vermont on the 10th. This is just a few miles from her home. On March 28th, her body was found and it was determined that she had been stabbed to death in the rural area of Heartland, Vermont. She too displayed that V-shaped stabbing pattern. This case is is really weird to me too because where her bot where her vehicle is found is just a few miles from her home. So police, friends and family have been baffled as to why Barbara Agnew would stop her vehicle that night. She's heading home. And as said, her car was later located just a few miles from her home. Now, some have suggested that, look, the snow was heavy that night. Maybe she decided to take a break from driving. Maybe she wanted to throw out some garbage from her vehicle or even make a phone call at a payphone at that rest area. But Or the simplest thing is that she had to use the restroom. She, yes, that, that's on that list of, of speculation. Why, why did she stop? Again, many people have said, but if she, if it wasn't an emergency, why stop at all when the vehicle, she's just a couple miles from her home, you know, two, three, four more minutes, she's at home. I look at this one and wonder if we have a completely different situation in this case that we might not have in some of the other ones. I wonder if she had been forced off of the road or someone, someone tricked her into stopping somewhere along the way 
and that could this be a situation where the killer or killers moved her vehicle after yeah very possible but like i said and and it's scary to think about and once we get to jane's case because jane stopped um because in jane's case she stopped to get a, a soda at a vending machine so uh, to just to think about this we have a killer that is going in some kind of pattern and he's checking the areas that people hitchhike at he's checking convenience stores he's checking for people that or uh, their cars have broke down on the side of the road he's checking rest stops he's checking pay phones he's checking places that are vending machines and it's probably there's there's probably some kind of high that he's getting just by going into these locations, knowing that he might be finding a victim. Well, then once you see somebody at these locations, well, how many people are around? Is there opportunity for you to pounce? Yeah. And I think you're exactly right here in this situation, captain. I think that it's very similar to some BTK activity. You know, after Dennis Rader was arrested and even tried and convicted and, and and he pled guilty to a lot of charges. One thing that was weird was they the experts and the authorities kept pointing out to him, you know, you're one of the the stranger serial killers because you, unlike most of them, stopped killing. Well, first of all, very few serial killers killed for the length of time that Right. Dennis Rader did. And so naturally there are going to be times when they stop killing and stop is a weird word to use because it's more like a pause, right? It's a pause between homicides and Rader pointed out. He said, look, no, I never stopped killing. I may not have actually killed anybody after this, this last homicide, but the act of killing involved so many other things for him. And a large part of that was trolling and driving in, in the excitement that he got looking for victims or his projects, as he would later call them. And you may have a similar situation here where this guy doesn't ever truly stop killing. He just didn't acquire a victim. He was always out driving and looking around and, like you said, had his spots where he would like to go, these hot spots that he's checking for a potential victim and a payphone given the time frame and given the cases that we've brought up and the victims that we've brought up payphones seem to be wrapped up into a lot of this guy's trolling or the methods that he's using the other thing going back to this idea where maybe you have this one case where Barbara Agnew's car may have been moved later to throw off investigators i think you can go back to the ellen freed case as well age 26 she's on the payphone talking to her sister they find her vehicle a couple of miles from that leo's market that convenience store where she was last known to be alive right. and well you know did did this killer find a way how do you find a way if ellen gets back in her vehicle and starts to drive off when they find her vehicle, there's no 
signs that there was a struggle in the vehicle. There's no signs that the vehicle wasn't working. She had mentioned to her sister, hey, this car has spooked me that's driven by. It spooked me so much, I was double-checking to make sure that my engine still works so I can get in the vehicle. Now, could she have run into car trouble and they weren't able to trace that when they found her vehicle? Yes, that could be a situation. But if her car was working fine, as she indicated to her sister, then how does she get back in her vehicle? She's already spooked. She's already said that to her sister. Spooked enough to double-check that the engine worked. How does then somebody trick her out of her vehicle or get her out of her vehicle? To me, it almost looks like a situation where she may have never got back into that vehicle and whoever got a hold of her did it before so and then chose to move her vehicle because they, when they spotted their victim, they spotted her on the payphone. They wanted to distance that vehicle or finding Ellen Freed from that payphone. Yeah, or the attacker attacks her in her car and takes off in her car. Uh, then doubles back on foot to get his vehicle. And you're right, Captain. That could be the scenario because we know with Jane Borowski's case, our surviving victim, that she was taken from her vehicle. So, yes, we could see a similar MO in some of these other cases. All right. I think it's now time. This is the part of the case, Captain, that I like to call the great debate. The reasons for and reasons against that these cases are in fact all connected. Now, a great website, New England Unsolved Blogspot, made a list for similarities between the cases, as well as a list of a case against a serial killer offender in these cases. Let's go ahead and review those now. For similarities between cases, the first that they know is that all of the cases, except for Critchley's, definitively involved a knife attack. And yes, this is true. We see the choice of weapon here in most of these cases, but one, we have a knife attack that is involved. Four of the cases had a specific stabbing pattern across the upper body and abdomen. The other cases may have also displayed this pattern, but were too decomposed to tell although an attack to the upper body was present. Yeah, so similar injuries. This is interesting. This is a little more specific than just victim after victim being stabbed to death. This is a specific stabbing pattern across the upper body and abdomen, which is found in at least four of these cases. Could have been present in some of the other cases, but due to decomposition, we can't tell. Third on the list, Captain, is with the exception of Linda Moore and Jane Borowski, all of the victims were killed in a wooded area that they had been transported to. Whether they were transported there and then attacked, or if they were attacked and then transported afterward, that is certainly up for debate. But what we do know is that with Jane Borowski's attack, her attacker attacked her in that parking lot, in that small parking lot of the little convenience store that was closed and essentially just left her there to die. And as you pointed out, may have even thought that she was close to death when he left her. And then we have Linda Moore, who we point out is very different just simply for the fact that she was killed and found in her home. Some of the experts in this case share the opinion that 
Linda Moore in that attack in her home that the killer may have been interrupted. And some even say that the attack on Jane Borowski, who survived, may simply have been interrupted as well. They go on to point out that two sets of victims were found in very close proximity to each other. That's one thing that, look, we pointed out that sometimes you just have a good location where people tend to, for lack of a better word, dump bodies or try to hide bodies. But one thing that we cannot move off of is the fact that two sets of victims were found very, very close to one another. It's almost like a Green River Killer type situation where he was dumping and discarding of victims in clusters. Right. One thing that's problematic for the the investigation is that three of the victims were known to be hitchhiking at the time that they were last seen. Two of the attacks, this is in the Freed and the Borowski attack, definitively involved a payphone and were near payphones at the time of the attack. We know that Freed was on the phone with her sister and then she vanishes. We know that in the Borowski attack, the killer or the attempted killer, for whatever reason, used the phone as a way to communicate with the victim saying, hey, does that phone work? What we don't know is with some of the other cases, it is possible that a payphone or soda machine or a stop at a convenience store may have been an element in some of the other cases, the Agnew case, the Morse case, the Critchley and the Cormanche cases. That's certainly a possibility just because we don't know exactly when our victim was abducted or how. Right. That makes sense. And as the captain pointed out earlier, and John Philbin points out with his assessment of these cases, that he speculates that it's possible that the killer would regularly check these areas, looking for spots along his route, his trolling route that that include payphones, that include soda machines, or places where victims may potentially stop at a rest area. He... John Philbin goes as far to suggest that it would be interesting to learn of who would service these machines, the pay phones or the soda machines, the vending machines. Yeah. Or similar to like the BTK, I believe BTK or Dennis Rader got his job with ADT because it gave him the opportunity to hunt when he was working. And so, like you said, is somebody servicing these payphones or servicing these vending machines or possibly even cleaning these locations, the rest stops or convenience stores or or even maybe trash pickup or multiple different jobs that would allow this individual to be trolling or hunting for a victim. And you're right with BTK. That job with ADT gives him insight, gives him intel into people's homes and their concerns with their own safety while they're at home. And that's very interesting. It's it's like on-the-job training, right, where he's out there, he's getting a job and, and doing a job that he's getting paid for, but at the same time, he's getting intel and he's getting insights into things that, of his fantasy life, right. of his cubed life of the cubed version of Dennis Rader, the one that wants to 
gain access to somebody's home and then kill whoever he finds inside. We also don't know how large the hunting ground was because there could be a difference between the hunting ground and the dump sites. So there could be a, a, a smaller area where this person can go out. Oh, I'm, you know, I'm going to tell my wife I'm going to the store real quick to, to pick up a couple items, but I can drive around for about 30 to 40 minutes without her suspecting that I'm doing this. I think he would get off on the hunting as much as he did the actual killings. I think you're right. And I think that there's plenty of evidence to suggest that you're right in this case here. They also list a case against a serial offender. And here are some of the items they suggest that would say, hey, we're, these are not all connected. We're not looking at, at one killer who's committed all of these crimes. So, and they point out that the, in the past 20 years, the Vermont and New Hampshire state police have officially declared their opinion that these attacks could not all be related. One case to be made was that all of the women led very different lifestyles, had different appearances, and were a variety of ages. They go on to point out that serial killers often work within a particular group, such as young women with blonde hair. Another concern was the timing. Even if a few attacks were related and occurred within a short amount of time, what could explain the long gap between the killing of Milliken and then Critchley, but then a very abbreviated period of attack between the other women. To some, these attacks off the timeline seemed unrelated to the three attacks that occurred in just one year and two months in Claremont, New Hampshire. Finally, one must question why so many different suspects have arisen with different physical attributes. The person believed to be involved with Linda Moore's attack was described as having dark hair. And then in some of these cases, we have a suspect that is described as having blonde or light hair. I think that th the, this list here is a little problematic. I, I like that it was put together. And to be honest with you, if someone asked me to create such a list, I would put together the exact same list of a case against a serial killer. However, we keep referencing BTK, and that's not by mistake. That's because you and I, or I and you, and hopefully I'm not talking out of turn here, Captain, but from our conversations about this potential serial killer here, right? I've already stated I do not think that all of these cases are connected. I think that likely some of them are the, the result of one single killer. However, it's not by mistake that we're referencing BTK because if you look at the extended profile of this individual, it aligns with that of somebody like Dennis Rader, BTK, somebody that is not just fits into the general public, but is a part of the public, is a part of the community, could be a father, could be a husband and a father, probably works a job, may, maybe even attends church and is a member of their community, an active member in their community. I think that there's a chance, of, a chance for that here. I also think that there could be reasons that would explain away why you have these weird gaps in the killing. So we know with Dennis Rader, he took gaps 
and his killings. And a lot of it had to do just with what was going on in his regular life and his normal person life. Right. That, that life got in the way of his hobby and his hobby was hunting and killing. And we know that with Gary Ridgeway, the green river killer that happened with him as well. You know, he went through a couple of different marriages and when he was in love and in the early stages of his marriage, he wasn't out hunting and killing. And we've also reviewed other serial killers and other offenders that only offended when their wife was pregnant or when they were triggered by something, some event in their normal life, they were laid off from a job and, and because they had nothing to do for six weeks, they managed to kill two people in a six week window where they had only killed one person a year leading up to that. Or what so we've I, seen with a, a lot of different serial killers is they, they kill somebody and then they tell themselves they're not going to do it anymore. And they're not going to succumb to these urges that they have. So that it was I, just a mistake. It was a one-time thing. I'll never do it again. I lost control. Right. So this whole, to me, it's poppycock. Every, I'd say not every, but I would say the majority, the majority high percentage of serial killers have gaps in their killings. So to me, it's a poppycock statement. I think where I fall is a little differently than, than where you're at. I think that traditionally the, the killers that I have reviewed, they tend to kill and then they increase the frequency in which they kill. But at the same time, they're, they're also going off the rails. They're losing control of themselves while they might be getting better in the early stages with the first handful of victims. Right. Eventually they start to go off the rails and they're losing control of themselves and start to create a whole lot of mistakes. And then they get caught. The problem with applying that here is if in fact, the serial killer is responsible for the majority of these cases, we're talking about a killer that has not got caught, right? Somebody that is different from those that do get caught. So I think when you review this list of a case against a potential serial killer, you could easily take serial killers that we've reviewed here on the show and otherwise, and look at this and say, yes, while all of these items certainly do present a case against a serial killer, you could then argue, okay, well, here's three examples or five examples of why it fits with this, this other type of killer that we know about that we caught that, that we are fully aware of who he was, what he did and who his victims were. Right. But I, I make an argument. Look, I agree with you. Yes. There's a lot of killers that you can look at that they kill somebody and then, then there's a time gap, then they kill somebody else and there's a time gap. And then eventually those gaps become smaller and smaller. That happens a lot of the time, but I would still argue that before that urge, and, and we've heard it from Dahmer, we've heard it from Bundy. Some of these guys go, look, at some point it just got to the point where I'm not going to fight it anymore. I am what I am, and I'm just going to do this. And I'm just going to go full, full board. But I would argue before that moment that you can find gaps in all of, all of their killings. That brings us to another interesting question. Are the victims that we discussed, are they all the potential victims of the Connecticut River Valley killer? Now, 
if you do some digging on this case, there are at least five other cases that some people include as part of this series. There's one still unsolved case way back in 1968. Then there's an elderly woman in 1982. There's even a male victim in 86. We have unidentified remains found in 1989. And then we have the cold case of Carrie Moss of New Boston, who went missing in 1989. And then her skeletal remains were found almost exactly two years later. A cause of death in her case has never been determined due to decomposition. Her case has been treated as a homicide, though. Now, one thing here, Captain, due to time constraints and due to the fact that we already agree, as do so many others, that when you review this list of seven or eight victims and it gets hard to quickly discern who is connected and who is not, it seemed a little rambunctious to me to try to dissect all of these other five cases. Uh, the male victim seems to be an outlier where doesn't seem to fit just because of the victimology. And then the first one, 1968, may just be way too early in the series. And then you have the complications with the cases in 1989 uh, with the, the unidentified remains and then the cause of death unknown in the Carrie Moss case. Well, again, we don't know if these killings just stopped or if this killer relocated and for armchair detectives out there that want to do a little further digging themselves the new hampshire department of justice has a victim map that is helpful it's not limited to the river valley case but if you go to doj.nh.gov you can navigate from there to the interactive victim map and a victim list for New Hampshire homicides and missing persons cases. Should someone want to troll that map and see if any other New Hampshire homicides fit into this potential series. want to thank everybody for joining us here in the garage. So much more to get to in part two. So stick around, why don't you? And until then, be good, be kind, and don't litter.